That evocative track you just heard was Pacific Coast Highway by East Forest, and that opens this, the 1,365th broadcast of Ultima Thule, ambient and atmospheric music from across the ages and around the world. This is your host, Mark Kundalini, coming to you from the Sydney studios of Ultima Thule Ambient Media. Heard in Sydney on Fine Music Digital and Fine Music Sydney. In Canberra on Outsound FM 92.7. In Adelaide on 5MBS 99.9. In Rock Hill, South Carolina on 98.5 WYTX. In the United States and North America via the PRX network. Across Australia via the Community Radio Network and around the world via streaming audio and podcast. You can now enjoy a higher quality on-demand stream of the Ultima Thule archive on mixcloud.com forward slash Ultima Thule. That's U-L-T-I-M-A-T-H-U-L-E. So we're going to move into the main body of this broadcast of Ultima Thule and I've taken a different tack with this one because we're featuring the incredible music of East Forest who was affectionately dubbed Krishna by Ram Das. Because East Forest's music is so profound, I've decided to interview him and this broadcast of Ultima Thule will take the form of an interview interspersed with a selection of tracks. So... I encourage you to immerse yourself in the wisdom of this incredible being. Thank you for your patience. You will be richly rewarded for your listening. This is Mark Kundalini. Enjoy. Okay, so this is Mark Kundalini interviewing East Forest. So we've we've got Trevor here, also known as Krishna. And I believe that name was uh, a name that arose through your interaction with Ram Das. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, Ram Das gave me the name Krishna, and I, that's just sort of something I've adopted in my personal life. But East Forest is the project, and that's yeah. my moniker and identity as a musician of sorts. In preparation for this interview, one of the things that I did was I watched some of the, the videos about yourself, and there was a, it was a beautiful video that you um, put together, and that was you talking about your relationship with nature. And this is one of the things which I immediately recognized in your music was the way that that living breathing connection with the natural world inspires your music and and it's it's something that you channel that that sort of Gaian energy and the just the wholesomeness and the nurturing that comes through a meaningful connection with nature so i'm hoping you can talk us through just a little bit about your musical journey from childhood and that interplay between music and nature, if you wouldn't mind. You know, I didn't get a connection with sort of connecting the dots between music and nature until later in life. And I I had more of a spiritual deepening or quickening probably in my late twenties. And that's when a lot of things came together, including me getting more keyed into nature and spending a lot of time in the Adirondacks north of New York City, way north. I was just very hungry to find places that were still wild and getting very excited to be in them. And the way I connected to them, well, I was backpacking, but the the sounds there, I noticed that if I made little field recordings, that something of the energy of what I was feeling in some of those places, those wild places would translate into those field recordings. 
And then I would bring those back to New York City where I was living at the time. And I was playing around with creating music just for myself. And I was weaving in some of these field recordings just for fun. And it really brought a, a lot of depth and soul and character to the music. And it, it's not something I do always in music, but it's just another like instrument you can play with, you know? Sure. Appreciate that. And yeah. one of the one of the things that really I picked up on very quickly in your music, it was it was the, the music for Mushrooms album that I first discovered you through, probably like a, a lot of um, your audience. Um, I know it's been very popular and you've released this Spores album as well to make it sort of a more concise journey yeah. for people. Yeah, if, if you could just talk a little bit about the, the evolution of that um, Music for Mushrooms album. I, I heard that you recorded it in a, in a live ceremony. Yeah, that's true. So, so one of the things I'm curious about is how did you, was it something that you spontaneously sort of channeled and it was it was very much an improvised work or was it something that you had a premeditated um sort of plan around the flow of the music i'd love to no, know about the evolution totally of that. improvised actually um and when i when i play inside ceremonies let's call them uh, psychedelic uh, therapeutic ceremonies you're guiding people with the, the music and in those spaces, I don't view that as a performance, so to speak. So people are there to go on. A, I'm there to kind of be like the captain of a ship where I can't control the seas and the storms that may come. But I, I need to put my hand on that wheel and steer a ship. So I'm doing that with the music. And I, I'm, I'm hoping at best something larger comes through. And so larger than just like my individual sense of self. And I think that's really best done if you open yourself up to something larger and that's why i improvise those those uh those sets because i want to it just needs to come from the heart it's more about the intention of where the music is coming from and i tend to record those when i do them i do them fairly uh rarely but regularly and sometimes it feels magical and i think that was in 2018 it was a weekend so two nights and about 20 people in the room and you know i was listening back to it and i thought you know I'd, I'd really like to finally just release essentially all of it as opposed to pieces of it i used to i used to piece together some albums and i have a couple albums in the past crystal starship and music to die to music to be born to prana uh, maybe another one or two that are essentially the same thing they're, they're from those ceremonies but they're they're edited down to become really an album like an hour or 45 minutes, four or five, six songs. And this time I thought, well, maybe I won't really edit it down much and I'll put out five hours and really make a, a very useful tool to guide people through these journeys because a lot of people are interested in going through a psilocybin experience, but they don't have anyone to guide them. Or they do have someone to guide them, like just to sit with them, but music becomes the central container of that journey and they don't have any expertise on what kind of music to play or if they put it together it's probably not uh, very thoughtfully done just because of a lack of experience with that and so I wanted to put out a useful tool because we've been doing this kind of work for a long time and really developing a kind of protocol largely through the music itself 
and there's a lot of intentionality to that. So that was the thought process behind that. And I think I was picking up on some cultural shifts and winds changing around the world with psychedelic research and acceptance of this kind of work. Because when it came out, uh, Michael Pollan's book came out and some here in the States, some decriminalization in Denver and Oakland came out uh, within a couple of weeks of that. And that was all just serendipitous timing. Uh, I, had, I had been working on the record for a year before that. So I didn't obviously know that that would happen. You're definitely, definitely in the flow there. Definitely tuned yeah. in. Yeah. So um, I, I didn't really think it was sort of the anti-establishment sort of music. Like, you know, we live in a time when the kind of music songs are getting shorter and attention spans are shorter. And I released a five hour album with 13 songs. So you, you do the math. Those are pretty long songs and they're very patient and there's no words in it. It's largely instrumental. So this is not something I expected to be popular and wasn't trying to make it commercially successful. I just wanted, again, to put something out. The, the title of it is quite intentional to tell people exactly what it is. Uh, music for Mushrooms, a soundtrack for the psychedelic practitioner. That's exactly what it is. So I didn't want there to be a mystery around that. Uh, but it it has been making the rounds, and I'm happy that it's, it's providing itself as a useful uh, digital shaman, so to speak, it's out of my hands now. I just sort of made it and put it out there. And I've, there's just been a tremendous amount of amazing synchronistic messages that I've received from people about how that was a very, very profound experience. And all I can say is it was for me too. And uh, I think, and I hope it will continue to be a valuable guide for people. It's absolutely profound as you've heard many, many times. So thank you for being the conduit to channel that and birth that and share that.
so just just share a little bit about my my background. I I've been working with sound healing, and sound ceremonies, and various other ceremonies for for many years. So, so one of my main entries into sound healing was back in the early nineties. I was at a festival and I was walking along, and I saw a group of people lying on the ground, and there were two men playing didgeridoo over this group of people. And I thought that looks interesting. So I joined them, I lay down and instantly I had this incredible activation experience where the sound of the didgeridoo was shifting my energies in the most profound way. And as you, you know, you were talking about the way that sound gets amplified in these states. In that moment, I realized I needed to learn this, to play this instrument to be able to share uplifting healing intentional sonic experiences with with people and so that became my journey and the the didgeridoo itself has become an incredible key that has opened many doorways uh, for me particularly it's led me to spend a lot of time with first nations cultures and that's and, and again you were talking about bridges before um you know building bridges across experiences and so one of the things that i am really passionate about is being a conduit or a bridge between First Nations cultures and Western colonial empire culture. And I'm curious to hear about your journey around that and the way that you've sort of woven your own connections. What are some of the spiritual and cultural influences that you have found valuable and you've retained and you integrate into your music? Well, cultural influences are pretty vast and wide. I mean, I grew up in, in the malaise of American suburbs, lost like a lot of other people. And that was a, it was a really sort of depressive feeling for me and not having any real elders or direction and having to kind of find it the hard way later in life. And so my initial r- true spiritual teachers were shamanic lineages and that was from direct experience, whether it's Peruvian shamans or San Pedro shamans in Peru or Lakota sweat lodges. Um, it's going through essentially the technology of ancient indigenous ceremony exactly as it's been done for thousands of years and learning from the direct experience of that. And that, that, that was really profound for me. I mean, it really cracked me open. And from there, it's just off to the races of... Uh, trying to put together a system that made sense to myself growing up in the West and growing up the way I did and and trying to come up with like essentially kind of an American shamanic tradition that spoke to me to use myself. That was it. And that's how my music began. It was just my own personal meditative tool. Um, And I've just, I think a a lot of Americans or I should just speak for myself. Like I feel like kind of like a spiritual mutt. Like we we don't have a leadership. We don't have. We just were kind of lost. And I felt that I tried a little bit of everything growing up, and I just couldn't figure out why none of it really landed with me, and none of it had any weight until I had those sorts of direct experiences. Like, oh, this is now this is the real thing. Uh, this is this is God. This is this is the universe. This is me. This is everybody. And that's when nature started to really make sense and, and sort of all of those forms of direct experience. But 
you know, people like Ram Dass and Charles Eisenstein and Terrence McKenna, these are all people who were pretty lions in my world that spurred me along. And there are many others I could list that their books or talks helped cultivate that those parts of my mind and try to synthesize the things that I was feeling. But more than anything, it was it was sort of a felt experience that I was then trying to translate into my life and to music and to what it means to be here. And I am still doing that today.
And in that journey, could you tell a bit about if and how there was a breakthrough moment? So when music became your um, sort of personal meditation tool, and then how did that evolve into a significant audience? Like at what at what point did it go viral? And if there was something that shifted that, that sort of helped it to go viral, what was that? I don't know. I mean, certainly the, the Ramdas record that I released last year reached a lot of new ears because Ramdas is amazing. <laughs> like it should reach a lot of ears and that was sort of the goal of it. But, you know, all that stuff is relative and it's hard, you know, what is viral to one person or popular to another is you know not. So I, I don't know. I'm just happy and super grateful that I'm able to make music and make any form of modest living by it is that success to me. It's a kind of freedom to express myself and express the gifts that I've been given and to cultivate them. That's all I can really feel responsible for. Sort of like when you're playing music in a ceremony, like is, is the music coming from the heart is the only litmus test that matters in that space. It doesn't, none of the rest matters. And there's a similar keel to my ship now that I have to remind myself of my motivations and my desires and the goals I'm I'm putting out there because I never want to get lost in any of the, like, you don't want the map to become the territory, so to speak. And I know why I'm doing it. And in the parlance of Joseph Campbell, I like to follow my bliss as a as sort of a North Star for us all to use. And for me, that's a creative excitement. I think for all artists, you're kind of following like, well, what, where, where does this want to go? Whether it's a song or a lyric or a mix or an entire record or your entire career, you're kind of just searching for the thing that's something about that over in that direction feels exciting. And that's usually a sign that's like kind of like your soul speaking to you, the universe. It's a feedback loop telling you to perhaps head in that direction. And that goes back to what we were saying about when you're sitting in ceremony. It's about listening and all our whole lives, like all of my, the music I'm making it in a sense. And what, what I'm trying to do every day, these are all forms of practice to cultivate that ability to listen and the, the ability to listen to those, those forms of excitement and bliss that are talking to us, the messages of our soul. Um, and you have to be able to, you have to clear away the noise to hear that stuff. Otherwise you're just lost in the day-to-day fog of the surface level stuff, the to-do lists and the problems and the crises and the joys and all that stuff. And I'm not, that's all part of it too, but it's important to, I think for many people, they want to feel they're on purpose, meaning like they have their purpose. They want to feel that they're moving in the right direction. What does that mean? You know, that encodes in it that we know there is a purpose an individual unique purpose to our journey. We know that there is something that isn't the direction we feel that what we're meant to be doing. And that's not about quantifying how great or large or how viral something is. It really isn't. Only you know in the privacy of your heart if 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 it's true for you or not. And that has nothing to do with how many people it reaches, whether that's zero people or one, just yourself or a dog or a tree, or a billion people. Not One is not greater than the other. 
uh, on the planes that I'm trying to speak to. And that's what I try to remember. I do remember that. I'm remembering it now by speaking it and by saying it, I'm, other people are remembering too. And I'll forget. And then I, you know, remind myself again, and we do this every day. And that's the, the yin and the yang of desire and consciousness, desire and release, the heart um, that never goes away. So uh, look, I have just as many problems and trials as everybody else. But I think if anything, I'm just trying to get better at every day that goes by, seeing that show go by, as Ramdas would say, as opposed to completely identifying with it and getting better at having compassion for that show and being like, oh, okay, there's that anxiety about whatever it is. Um, that's okay. That's not the whole thing, you know, and I'm now separate from it a bit and it doesn't have as much weight and identity. Uh, so look, there's no destination and I know that I probably have, if I'm lucky, another 30 years at best of making like quality music, probably 20. And that's it. You know, that's what I, that's all, that's what I have to work with. And so instead of trying to grasp at that, it's sort of like, those are the colors I have to paint with in a way. I'll just keep painting as we all do. And that's that, you know, we're singing each other awake. That's it.
you'll notice every now and then I'm, I'm having a little laugh here because I'm, I'm loving the way that you're answering a lot of questions which I already had and touching on things like Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss and the clearing away the noise and singing each other awake. And um, on that comment, if you can unpack a little bit more around clearing away noise to sit in the space of deep listening and how that process supports and guides the process of singing each other awake. Well, I don't want to make it sound overly complicated, nor do I want to make it sound stuffy. Uh, I think we clear away the noise all the time without fully giving it credence or credit. Um, Certainly in these peak experiences like psychedelics or sex or Anytime you're in a flow state with creativity, those are absolutely those, those spaces. But I think it can happen while you're washing the dishes. It's sort of like a disengagement with the judgment. It's not, in my mind, a disengagement with thoughts. I mean, that certainly is a path to a pure form of consciousness there. But I don't want to relegate thoughts into like the boogeyman or that our ego is the enemy. I think that's... a that's a, problematic thinking because you're now you're fighting something and furthermore you're fighting an integral part of yourself what would it mean if your teammates with your ego what would it mean if that's like a scared child that's part of this larger ecosystem of consciousness of a lifetime inside your the timeline of your being and how would you treat any scared child hopefully with patience and love and reassurance because you know something the child's not able to understand at that moment in time in life, but you know, it's okay. They don't, you know, they're flailing or so you just have to wait it out and hold them, so to speak. And I think that's what we need to do with those emotions. Uh, There's a song on the Ram Dass record called dark thoughts. And he talks about loving your dark thoughts, which is a profound idea as opposed to, pushing them away or changing them or ameliorating them, loving them. Yeah. It's, it's pulling them closer. And I think if you take that attitude with a lot of things, it's a, it can be a pretty uh, major shift in your actions. Uh, anytime we have this us versus them mentality or us versus whatever you're creating, that is dualism itself. And there's a pain in that. And it's a more interesting path to think about how do we walk with it? How do we hold things? How do we, how do things compost? As Bio Akomalafe uh, said, uh, these are beautiful ideas. And I think that the mystic poetry speaks to this, speaks to this ineffable, ethereal middle. As uh, Bio also said, the becoming Things are, we are becoming. It speaks to this notion of not having arrived anywhere or that there isn't a destination. There's nowhere, there is no place we'll get to and then that's the end. It's it's just always becoming or composting at the same time. And so even what I'm saying is a bit of a word salad, but I mean, that's kind of the point. And that's why I like music because it it speaks to these feelings without even using words uh, just by using combinations of ratios and and rhythms and tones, it we understand. It creates an understanding.
then you witness a, a dark thought, a dark thought that isn't going to get you anywhere. You witness it and love it. You love your dark thoughts. which you touched on before and, and immediately struck me when I listened to your music, you were, you were talking about how you weren't trying to create something that was popular. You were really creating something that, and that was your truth. And, you know, talking about the music for Mushrooms album, for example, you know, the way that popular culture is after shorter and shorter sound bites and their attention spans are like this and you created a, a five-plus hours album with, is it 13 tracks? And so yeah. I remember one of my early influences in music with Brian Eno. And I remember a long time ago reading an interview by him and the one phrase he said that really jumped out to me, and that was, it's not the sounds in the music 
which are important. It's a space between the sounds. That's where the meaning is carried. And that's always sat with me and inspired and guided the way I tend to work with ambient music. So I'd love to hear more about the way you discovered your profound ability to create music which breathes, which just has so much space where you can just feel yourself expand and decompress. Yeah, I think I'm a big fan of Bill Evans, and he said something similar. It's like the notes you don't play. And Keith Jarrett also. You know, part of it was happy accident in that I can't really play that well and certainly couldn't early on. And so the simplicity in a lot of my music was, was based on that's the best I could do. And I, I, ha- I could hear in my head uh, what I wanted or where I wanted it to go, but I had a technical limitation of being able to express that. I still do. And there is also an innocence to that that creates a kind of like, okay, you have three colors to paint with in a way. So you can still make beautiful paintings, but sometimes having fewer choices creates something that's uh, more approachable or in many ways uh, often more profound. So that, that's been the case for me. I, I didn't know how to qualify it. I, I was more just chasing a particular feeling and I just knew when the music was creating that feeling inside myself and my gut or not. And that was, that was how I kind of would guide the experience I wanted to go. And that was, it's very difficult to explain what that feeling is or musically what that is, but it's, it's something if I were to try, it's sort of dancing between happy and sad. It's in this liminal space that's hopeful yet, um, not totally defined and patient. And those are all sort of qualities I think I was looking for for myself, like sort of an authenticity in its in its hopefulness without being saccharine. So I like music that's deeply emotional because I like to tap into these parts of my own psyche that are that feel that makes me to feel the most alive. And so I'm looking for ways with music that I can feel that. And I often find for myself, there's, it's done through simplicity. And certainly there's a time for lots of layers. And, and a lot of my music does have a lot of thickness and layers to it. But I think there's something really special about when you can make something work with the least amount of ingredients, you know, just a piano or uh it's amazing you know it's beautiful like that and so and it's always a great challenge creatively to think that way too
I can definitely relate to when you say you you like music that's deeply emotional. Your much of your music in in a very in its subtlety is also incredibly emotional, and I feel like one of the things that it does is by being so spacious and gentle and easy, it allows people to feel safe to melt, to let down their armor. And then when that music then penetrates below the armor, it touches our wounds and our joys, whatever's sort of suppressed, and it, it activates it, it sort of breathes life into it. So yeah, I like to say gentle power because anytime I've entered into a psychedelic journey, I usually invoke into the universe is like, please be gentle and please be powerful. <laughs> and I think that's sort of how I want to walk. That's what I'm looking for in life is like, I don't want to be slapped across the head, but I also, I do want to have a very powerful and deep, meaningful experience. And I think you're probably picking up on that in the music itself. There's There's an intention there that it's coming through the filter of me. <laughs> That's something that I want. Yeah, wow. So something I was curious about was um, to hear a little bit about your uh, intentionality, like what, what sort of personal, that you're prepared to share, uh, what sort of personal rituals and how do you prepare yourself and prepare your state your energy for going into facilitating ceremony whether that ceremony be with a group of people or whether that ceremony sure. be creating a piece of music that you're recording in the studio i appreciate that they're both well you know. i think there's a few different layers to that um i don't separate out like my life from my work meaning like i don't think there's a free pass where i can act one way and then expect something special to come through at moments when I choose in the studio. So if you think about like Don Miguel Ruiz's uh, The Four Agreements, for instance, like the first one, being impeccable with your word, that's important, okay? And it's to say that I can't be an asshole and get away with it. Like there's energetic karma. So everybody makes mistakes, but my intentionality deeply matters, the way I treat myself and my mind, the way I treat an animal, the way I treat my partner, the way I treat my family, the way I treat a, a cashier at the grocery store, it's all the same ball of wax. You're cultivating the constituent parts like the kindling in a way. And when I'm, when I'm creating in the, the studio, uh, whether with myself or other people or uh, doing a podcast for my podcast or something, I actually intentionally try to not over ritualize it or overthink it. I want to just be like, because my life is, I want it to be the same energy. It's like, I'm just trying to be in right livelihood. It's like, this is more of that. Let's just start. Let's just play. Let's just make noise. Don't think about it. Don't make it a big thing. Cause then you, the last thing you want to do is get all in your head about it. When I'm entering into a performance or the ceremony space it's it's impossible for it not to be heightened because it is what it is. Like there's going to be some nerves involved and there's pressure and there's a timeline, especially if it's a performance where people have paid money. It's like they want it to be entertained. It's all these factors. So you, you can't avoid the fact that that's not ordinary life. That is not normal. You know, <laughs> that is an extraordinary experience that you're, especially if you're performing solo. 
And again, it's about not getting in your head about it. I definitely have some like physical rituals and things I do to kind of prepare my body, so to speak. But the mind is like, you know, easy breezy. You want it to just feel easy breezy. I do not want to overthink it. I didn't, you know, the worst thing I could think is like, this is the most important performance I've ever done. Or, you know, it's just like, this is, uh, I got a saying I always tell myself in my, it's a joke, but I say it, it's actually like a mantra. I say another day, another day, another dollar. And it's just like, tell myself, it's just, just another gig. And uh, even though I care deeply about it and it's deeply sacred, it's a way of me just being like, don't take it too seriously. You know, you're just, we're just making sounds and enjoying life together. So <laughs> do your best. Um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot to consider. And oftentimes it makes it challenging pre COVID when you're flying somewhere like flying to Australia and driving all the things you do. And you finally get to the show and you're like, God, it's taken days to get to this moment. And I maybe planned for months and it's like, it's tough. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure, but uh, I think that's why when you get into the flow with it and you start doing several shows and any exhaustion starts to set in, you stop thinking about it as much and you just do it. (laughs) Keith Jarrett has a famous story. He's an amazing pianist. You should check him out. Uh, he's one of the greatest pianists of all time. And he has a concert called the Colne Concert. And he would play these concerts, solo piano, where he'd improvise completely. Didn't know what he's going to play when he's coming out. And this time he was not feeling well. And the piano was so bad that he was he canceled the performance. But the promoter was a teenager, said it's sold out. Please, just begging him, please do it. And so they, they did their best with like chewing gum and tape to, to fix some things. And he's a perfectionist. And then he had dinner too quickly and he felt sick and had heartburn from the Italian restaurant across the street. He's just like, and he actually told the engineers not to record it because he says, well, it's, it's going to be a disaster. But then he he said at the last minute or his manager said, you know what, record it. So we have a recording of a disaster in case we need like, an, you know, someone's going to argue with us, you know, so they recorded it and uh, he, it was, he started playing and it became total magic instantly. And it became his most popular performance. And it's the most popular instrumental album, I believe to this date. It's amazing piece of music long form improvisations on the piano and there's something in there about limitations getting out of your head dropping expectations and he just went right into the flow because maybe he had already given up a lot of those before he started and i like to try to remember that i mean there was a concert i played in portland oregon a couple years ago and someone broke into my car like right before i was when i was sound checking just smashed my window in broad daylight and took a bunch of stuff or, or tried to. And it was traumatic. And also I was the first, second day of tour. I was like, I have to get this fixed like tonight. And like, it was just complicated. And I was trying to sound check and play. And, but I remember the performance um, feeling ecstatic. And I remember afterwards feeling like, wow, that was really tapped in. And I felt like I really just, what a beautiful, beautiful, uh, experience but it was so stressful <laughs> you know? and it's a similar story um, that one was not recorded but um, that's how I felt 
And so I think that's important to remember in life, you know, about what, what, expect, what expectations do and how they create a frame about our future and how when we can drop them, what kind of opening that creates for what is and maybe what's always there. It just needs the space to come through. Well, that's a, a beautiful anecdote and you know, a wonderful reminder for everybody around trusting and surrendering.
Now, I'll offer you two questions and you can pick which one you, Sounds good. you like. Um, and they're kind of related. So one is about, uh, like in Sanskrit, there's a word seva, which is service. Um, and, and I'm aware that your offering to the world is, is very much coming from a space of, of service. And, you know, you were, you were talking about Don Miguel Ruiz and the four agreements, you know, and that integrity and sort of the way that you carry that and express your music with that. So that's sort of one thing if you could perhaps speak to. And the other thing is how did you come to um, make and meet and work with Ram Das and sort of what sort of evolved and shifted through that? Well, the second question I've answered many, many times on my podcast. No, so I'll probably answer the first one because I yep. haven't been asked sure. that as much. Uh, yeah, say, seva and service. I, I think, I think when you start to, may, or maybe a sign that you're walking down your path and that you're on that path, is a recognition that there's really nothing else to do but service. And when I say that, it doesn't mean that you're only serving food at a food kitchen or helping the homeless. Those are clearly forms of service, but it means that. Everything is a gift. And that also means how you receive the gift. And there's a dance there that is important. And maybe that is the great dance that we're doing through this whole incarnation. And ultimately, these heightened states of any kind teach us that we are not just isolated beings, that we are a part of a connected collective, a whole, sub ek one and when you have that realization especially if it's a powerful felt experience it's not an intellectual idea it's a knowing from it's like you went to the moon and you came back it's like i remember i remember what it was like i went there um i can why would you forget that once you know you can't unknow and ramdas would say then there's only one game in town and that's sort of the game returning to god and, and and in essence why wouldn't you then have that compassion for everything happening around you and in turn all of your words and your actions become a form of gift a form of service to that anything else is just being lost going in circles because there's nowhere to go other than returning home returning to that place of quiescence in in your own heart into the now and bringing everyone along with you because we're already there. And so it's, it's just sort of like when I say singing one another awake, it's sort of uh, another way of saying, um, reminding one another of what is holding the scared child, loving the parts of yourself that normally you think you should push away, bringing them closer because you know, they can't harm you. You know that there's nowhere to go. You don't have to run. You don't have to hide. And that's, the dance of of life and uh it's a simple answer it's not an easy answer but it's simple and so music and practice and conversations and good counsel these are nature these are all things like many other things that help us help us remember that we are inside the mystery and the mystery is the mystery for a reason it's not meant to be completely understood otherwise there would seemingly be no purpose to being here otherwise we would just be these floating souls in bliss it'd be like oh i figured the game out so (laughs) 
there's a reason why we're inside this operating system of our mind and dualism on campus earth to learn. There's a reason in, in my view. And that truth is not something you have to share. I'm just singing that song and I'm singing it to myself as much as I am to you and everyone listening because I need to be reminded. And by playing the melodies and the notes and by creating the music, I'm reminding myself. And by reminding myself, I'm reminding others. The service is not just to others. It's to me. It's to all. It's to the one. And that's the kind of devotion that we all have the ability to tap into. And I think we do it all the time without fully recognizing how we're, we're, we can't, you know, it's like you can't not be in that thing. You can't fall out of love. And uh, you're just finding the ways that help you remember. And then we wake up and we do it again.
everyone by inhabiting the soul. hope you enjoyed that journey weaving between profound interview and exquisite music. That track you just heard was Please Pass the Bliss, and that was the Nick Mulvey rework. And that closes the main body of this, the 1365th broadcast of Ultima Thule, ambient and atmospheric music from across the ages and around the world. This is your host, Mark Kundalini, coming to you from the Sydney studios of Ultima Thule Ambient Media. Heard in Sydney on Fine Music Digital and Fine Music Sydney. In Canberra on Outsound FM 92.7. In Adelaide on 5MBS 99.9. In Rock Hill, South Carolina on 98.5 WYTX. In the United States and North America via the PRX network. Across Australia via the Community Radio Network and around the world via streaming audio and podcast. You can now enjoy a higher quality on-demand stream of the Ultima Thule archive on mixcloud.com forward slash Ultima Thule. That's U-L-T-I-M-A-T-H-U-L-E. George Cruikshank will be back next week to take you on another journey. But until then, I'm going to leave you with a closing track and also another little interview snippet where you can find out more about East Forest's work and learn how to connect with him. I'll also be posting the video from this interview on the Ultima Thule YouTube channel, so just search for Ultima Thule Ambient Music to find that video. should be posted within the next couple of weeks. This is your host, Mark Kundalini. Enjoy.
Now, I wanted to make sure I've given you the opportunity to share with our audience how they can connect with you, how they can find out more about your work, your various offerings, your channels. I know you've mentioned podcasts, obviously. You're on Spotify and um, there's, yeah. there's various other things that you have. But if you if you'd kindly just uh, share with us the various channels and offerings that you do have. Well, it's very easy. I mean, anywhere you listen to music, you just search East Forest, whether that's Spotify, Apple, even YouTube. But my website will push you to wherever, whatever you're trying to find. And that's just eastforest.org, not .com, .org. And that has stuff about like the podcast that I do weekly or I offer retreats and the live events and the new releases. And then I have a meditation album I put out last year, a small album and all the other things. Uh, so, you know, I think the most reliable way to stay in touch is to get on the newsletter, which doesn't go out very often. And we do geographically send it out if it's about tour stuff, but I'm easy to find. <laughs> yeah, I found you very easy to find. And I'm sure our listeners are going to really, once they listen to this interview and having already, many of them having heard the uh, previous show I did, which featured a lot of your music and then whatever we come up with for a future, future program, um, I'm sure they're going to definitely be inspired to learn more.